Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hello and welcome to The Nine Line Podcast, the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System's resource for veterans covering local and national VA information. I'm your host, Public Affairs Specialist John Archiquette, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Joshua Gray. What's going on, Josh? Hey, John. How's it going? You worked the title in there this time. That's yeah, great. I tried yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and luckily, we've got two special guests today, and uh, I'm joined by our infectious disease experts, Dr. Jason Daisley and Dr. Myron Kong. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Or good afternoon, whatever, whatever time you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> it's all the same. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about yourselves. Uh, you're both are two resident experts here on uh, on infectious disease and most importantly right now with uh, COVID-19. Um, tell me what brings you to the VA and, and a little bit about your past. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Daisley. All right. So um, I trained on the East Coast. Um, I was in New Jersey, New York, um, Seton Hall University, as well as uh, New York Medical College over there. Um, I saw a lot over there, a lot of pathology, a lot of infection. That's really what got me interested in infectious disease. Um, We had a couple outbreaks. We dealt with the Ebola. Um, So that was really interesting, kind of prepping for that whole thing that didn't really happen in the end, at least for us. And then coming here, I've been here about five years with the VA here. I've really enjoyed um, each moment of it, the way that just everything's so proactive. There's a lot of hard work that goes into everything. Um, And at this point, it's been just fascinating to see how this is all rolled out. And for us, at least, we've seen a lot of success. We've seen a lot of um, difficulty and challenge along the way as well. And um, I don't think there's an end yet that we can see in sight, but we continue to hope for that. So that's a little about, about me at this point. Thanks. Dr. Kong. And so I got my start at the University of Hawaii for medical school, went to Yale for my residency, and then University of South Carolina for my uh, fellowship training. Uh, The one thing that I can say that I think I did right in this whole pandemic was that I hired Dr. Daisley way back when, so that turned out to be a good decision. Anyway, I got my start in the VA. I had worked in the private sector before. Um, but medicine has been changing. The business of medicine has been changing, and a lot of it is just a business now. The VA is one of the few places, even compared to the universities, where I think we can still practice idealized medicine. I don't have insurance looking over me. I still get to do the tests and the treatments that I think are appropriate for my veteran without having somebody to oversight everything that I do. The VA is one of the few places where that's kind of golden age medicine is still around. So I appreciate that very much. Well, the VA is very lucky to have both of you gentlemen working here because you guys bring a breadth of knowledge. Uh, and we're going to kind of delve into some of that today. Uh, the two things we really want to hit on are, number one, to clarify some of the questions that a lot of veterans may be confused on. You know, we, we hear so many different sources, you know, from reputable to un, not so reputable, um, you know, talking about what's going on with the coronavirus. So we want to address a few of those things just to... Uh, to clarify and shed some light on this. And number two, we want to talk about some of the experience that you've had so far in going on. This is what our fourth month now in uh, dealing with coronavirus here. And we've definitely seen surges and, you know, you have successes to talk about some frustrations and, and we'll get into those. But 
let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the you know the frequently asked questions. So, are we currently still in the first wave? Or are we seeing a second wave, or is this like a surge that we're right. in right now? Um, you know, before we answer the specific questions, the caveat has to come in that we are learning a lot as we go along. Um, you know, we saw our first patient, Dr. Daisley and I, in March. And I can say already the things that we do are different than what we had done back then. So even in this short period of time, a few months, uh, the you know, knowledge of medicine and how we treat COVID has changed drastically. So as we start to answer these questions, and you know, I think one of the, uh, the thing that you brought up is there's a lot of information out there that can sometimes be contradictory. And I think the reason that is, is because we are learning as we go along. And, you know, as we give answers, even for this particular podcast, and things may change, you know, by the time we broadcast this podcast, uh, we ask that the public, you know, trust us in terms of what we know now. We are giving our answers as best as we can with what we know. But as things evolve and as we get smarter about this and get more experience, our answers may change. And that's not because we're trying to be wishy-washy or because we're trying to obfuscate the you know, situation. It's because we truly are getting more information as we go along. We become more knowledgeable. So, so what's an example uh, of that? Sure. Where, where you, you thought it was one thing and then as, as more and more cases come in you, and you get a bigger body of evidence, right. you realize that something may be different. Right. I think one of the you know, things on the forefront of news right now is universal masking. And you can hear in our voices right now that we are all around this table and we are masked right now for this interview. You sound like Darth Vader. It, I <laughs> I chose the mask specifically yeah. so I could do my rounds <laughs> talking like Darth Vader's. It's always been one of my dreams. It's black too. Um, but anyway, you know, it, the message early on about masking was due in part to practicality. When the CDC said we should rever- reserve masks for healthcare workers and the public shouldn't wear it, it was simply a supply issue at that time. Okay, But as we look at how this disease spread, who it spread to, where it has spread, uh, how many people it it has affected, we start to get more information and a better sense for how things spread and how COVID gets transmitted. So what we found is the people who have masked in places that have universal masking, the spread is a lot less. And that's pretty obvious. So that's why we are now recommending it. Initially, when we didn't really have that much COVID here, or maybe it was just starting, we said probably it was not out there enough that we asked everybody to mask. But the numbers are such now that you hear about all of these hotspots and the numbers in the United States are rising. We are at a point where we are recommending that everybody does mask because it is for everyone else's safety. And that's simply the issue. And I might just add one thing to that, and all of that is absolutely true, and we're finding even more information out there now. Now there was just a news report that came out through the New York Times who was, it, they gave a response to all those scientists that talked about is there aerosolization in the air at any given time. That came out and they said yes, we acknowledge the fact that that's true. And the biggest problem they see is in patients' homes where the, the ventilation is poor. And I think that's what we have to look at more than anything to make sure that those individuals are distanced, are wearing proper 
personal protective equipment to protect themselves when they're at home and possibly improve the ventilation in their home. So then would you recommend that people wear a mask at home? Because like I go home and you know my wife's there and kids and yeah. and well I know where they've all been yeah. and <laughs> the mask comes off right. Um, so is that something that you would recommend that people then mask at home also? Because that's not currently like the CDC guidelines or, or anything like that. Yeah right now they're saying where at least out in our community. They're saying wear a mask in public and in private as much as you can. And I, I realize that it's not an ideal thing to wear a, a mask at home, especially with your kids around and everything like that. We should do the best we can depending on our ventilatory situation at home as well. So I realize that people aren't gonna be wearing them at all times. We should just do the best we can to social distance. And if you can wear a mask in, in home places, that's fine, especially when you have extended family members coming over, other people coming over, then that's definitely gonna be a must. I agree with that too. If you ask, what do I do? I do mask at home. Why? Because I work with COVID every single day. Both Dr. Daisley and I have probably seen a COVID patient or been around a COVID person every single day since March. I have a family member who has lung trouble. I have a family member who has underlying conditions that may make COVID worse. So it's a question that I ask myself. Yes, it's an annoyance. Yes, it's trouble. And yes, I feel like I wanna take off my mask. But then I think through the situation, would I be okay if my loved one got COVID? Will it have been worth it? The answer is obviously no. So every time I think about how frustrated I am, how uncomfortable I am, I think, well, what is the alternative? I didn't wear a mask, and that one in a hundred chance my loved one got COVID. Would I have been okay with that decision? Obviously not. So that's why I mask at home. So the two of you obviously have a job where you're exposed to a lot more patients who are confirmed COVID positive. Uh, now, a lot of veterans out there are worried like, oh, well, I may have been at dinner with somebody who was possibly corona positive. Uh, maybe I've got, you know, some underlying you know, issues and that's really, like, you know, I, I really don't want to be exposed to this. You know, how do you define what exposure really is to the layperson? Yeah, so exposure right now, at least by the CDC definition, is somebody who is within six feet of somebody and with about 15 minutes or greater time. And then that could be somebody who is unmasked. That's another big part of it. And so that's how specifically you define that. And it's really hard because a lot of times you're not going to be measuring that, but you have kind of an idea if you're doing that. And that happens, I guess, in the workplace. It happens at home and different places like that, especially when you think about people that are eating. They're going to unmask themselves because you can't eat with the mask on. And so those are the times where you really have to think about, are we exposing ourselves to others? And then that really begs the question of, what about all those people that are not symptomatic but may have the disease without even knowing it? There's a huge percentage of people that are that way. Well, sure, the more cases that we see yeah. with younger people who yep. may not have those underlying conditions, mm -hmm. you may have a lot more cases of, of asymptomatic. Yeah, exposure. and so that's an issue. People all the time, they get tested because they have a job where they require it, but they have no symptoms at all. Some of those symptoms could just be as simple as lack of taste and lack of smell. They don't even have that, and they're young and healthy, and so they would think, well, why even get tested? But if they have to get tested, and they do, and they're positive, then what? And so at, at that point, you could be exposed to somebody without even knowing it. 
So what's the what's the driver on on fifteen minutes? Is there like a a, a like if if you walk by somebody and they're just breathing and they're they're COVID positive, you're not going to inhale as much of the the virus and enough to get you sick. Like your body can fight it off. Is it like radiation where you get like a certain exposure and then it becomes dangerous? Uh, I, I, articulating this terribly but no that, I, that, I, that, I, yeah. the, that's that's a common question and it's difficult for us to even answer simply because it's not an on and off thing right 15 minutes isn't a magical number 14 minutes and 59 seconds you're okay but 15 minutes and one second oh you're gonna get COVID it's not five minutes it, not great right not terrible exactly kind of thing. I will tell <laughs> you how how they come up with the 15 minutes okay the underlying principle is that the more you are exposed, in other words, how much virus you get exposed to, the more likely you are to get the disease. Okay, so the longer you spend, the more exposure you get. The more infectious somebody is, super sick, shedding virus like crazy, coughing like crazy, the more likely you are to get it. So you can kind of now make a judgment call on how likely you are maybe to get it, okay? If you are very briefly next to somebody, but even though they're coughing, less likely, okay? In a good ventilated area like Dr. Daisley mentioned. But let's say you are in a restaurant where you're sitting next to other people for an hour, an hour and a half while you eat your meal, unmasked, with poor ventilation, even though that person may be asymptomatic because you're around it for longer, the more likely you are to get the disease, okay? So the 15-minute cutoff basically comes from what we look at when we look at hundreds and thousands of people across all different cities and nations, and we see how quickly it spreads. And we say an estimation of about 15 minutes. If you pass somebody, the answer is most likely no, you're not going to get it. Okay? But if we follow that infected person, we see that person was in a room talking to somebody less than six feet apart for about 10 to 15 minutes, the other person more likely to get it. The common story that has gone around in the news about those people singing, the choir, how that got transmitted. There was one singer who had COVID, but the people who got it were much farther than six feet away. Well, how do we explain that? because they were forcefully singing and exhaling, and they were in the same room for longer, much longer than 15 minutes. So you can see then that the transmission rate in that instance is very high. Okay. So it's not a binary thing, like you're exposed uh, or not, there's it, varying degrees. Exactly, exactly, right? And it's yeah, not it's like, I don't want people to take this, you know, even though this is serious, it's not like something like Ebola, where in passing, you get one little virus, you're running, you know, on the sidewalk, and somebody runs past you unmasked, and, you know, you pass each other, that all of a sudden you're exposed. That's not considered an exposure. We're going to take a quick break and come back, and we'll talk a little bit more with our resident infectious disease experts, Dr. Kung and Dr. Daisley. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. All across the country, people are coming together to speed up what we can learn about health. The All of Us Research Program is calling on one million people to join us as we try to change the future of health. For your family, for future generations, for all of us. Visit joinallofus.org and find out how you can become one in a million. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. We're back with The Nine Line Podcast, VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System's resource for veterans covering local and national VA information. I'm John Archiquette, Public Affairs Specialist and your host here, along with my co-host, Joshua Gray. And Hello. today we have a very special guest with us, infectious disease experts, Dr. Jason Daisley and Dr. Myron Kong. And of course, we're here talking about the, uh, the topic on everyone's mind, coronavirus. Uh, getting back to the conversation we were having earlier, uh, a lot of people are wondering about the, the treatment options that have come out. You know, over the last four months, we've seen everything from hydroxychloroquine, uh, dexamethasone, remdesivir. What, what options are you guys using here, and what have you seen success with? Well, the main one that we're using that probably has the most success is the steroid, which they call dexamethasone. So that came out recently in a study out of Oxford where they actually showed that one-third out of all those that were sick and would have died actually did not die. So it decreased mortality up to a third of a percent, which is really a huge fraction of individuals that died. We don't have all the details on the study, but we have enough information to say that they stopped the study early enough that we know that it was a strong study, and at this point we know that it was really a good medication to use. So that's the best one that we have. And so that's usually we need criteria for that as well. If they're short of breath, if they're using oxygen, if we see something on our imaging that tells us that they have something that looks like a viral pneumonia, then they're already meeting criteria for that medication. The other one that you just, uh, said also was remdesivir. This is an antiviral agent, and this is something that we have used in other kind of outbreaks. I guess Ebola, they've used it. They've used it in other um, infections as well. It hasn't actually reported a lot of success. We're just seeing that those individuals that seem kind of sick and seem like they would go home eventually, it kind of shortens the amount of time they're in the hospital. So that's kind of where that has been. The other one is convalescent plasma. This is where we actually get a donation of plasma from somebody who has already had the sickness. And so they have immunity already to it. So they have something called antibodies. And these antibodies are theoretically supposed to help the patient that is sick and sort of really critical, maybe they already are on mechanical ventilation. So we're just kind of reaching at anything we can give them to try to help them to cope with it. But the studies have not been quite as clear and successful so far. 
And along with all that, anticoagulation is important because they develop clots. So a, a question about convalescent plasma. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about we're waiting for a vaccine, and you know, a vaccine, the, the mechanism that it works is it puts some of the some of the virus into you in an inactivated state, and then your body makes antibodies. Yep. Why can't we just go and replicate convalescent plasma uh, and and inject it into everybody? Uh, like, why why can't you use scientifically, why can't you use convalescent plasma as your vaccine? Yeah, you need something much more specific than that. And we're, what we're realizing, something that Dr. Kung has brought up also recently, is that the immunity that we're seeing in individuals with these antibodies is very short term. And vaccines work a much different way, where you're actually a very specific part of it that's genetically and molecularly sort of altered so you can just see maybe a specific portion of the virus and whether it's alive killed or the DNA part of it the RNA part of it there's very specific things that they're doing scientifically to make sure this is going to work and vaccines they take many years to develop sometimes you know sometimes five to ten years so they're really trying to push this to get something quicker but it's a challenge because you have to go through all the rigor mortem of all those specifics you have to look at to see if it's going to work properly and so those are some of the challenges with the vaccine, and that's not something you can do on a general basis with just injecting everybody with these antibodies. So along with the, the antibodies tests, um, it, you know, it seems like anybody who may have had anything from a, a sniffle to you know, any of the other symptoms they thought may be coronavirus-related, um, you know, as far back as December, January, you know, a lot of people are wanting to go get it, to go get those antibody tests to find out what's the success rate with those tests. And... If you do find out you did have antibodies, do you think that that makes you less susceptible to a consecutive infection? Very uncertain. We just don't have enough information to tell us that those antibodies are, first of all, even real. It could just be a false positive, depending on how many people in your community really have it. So overall, we're looking at it and saying, well, is this real or not? They usually have to get a follow-up test. And you also have to look at the time when they may have been exposed to the virus in the first place. Did they have symptoms? Was it at least 14 days ago? And then from there you can say, well, the sensitivity is really high, meaning that at this point you can say that there's maybe some accuracy, at least by not missing any. But at the same time, if you have false positives or you may have some of those that aren't really positive, you're still going to have a fair amount of those. And so that's really a problem with this. And then the uncertainty of not really knowing how much immunity is developed and how long it'll last. We don't have a titer like some other vaccines that you may give somebody to really say, well, their titer's at this level. So we can say with certainty that they have some immunity and it's going to be lasting, you know. You know, you guys have been on the front lines with this for the last four months, and you've had a lot more hands-on experience than any of us working on this podcast and any <laughs> most of us who are probably listening. Uh, what are some of the, the successes that you've seen so far? Well, I definitely the one that Dr. Kung brought up, the index case. We're seeing them along the way with lots of people that are recovering, but that one was the first one that we saw in Nevada, and that was the first one that was definitely critically ill. And we were still at, at a time where we just didn't know how to handle this. We, we didn't know what to expect. There wasn't a lot of information out there. But thankfully, we had good specialists. Dr. Kung was at the front line with that one, really helping in a strong way, looking at the evidences out there, seeking to advise the CDC and other governing bodies that didn't know what to expect also. And so I think with all of that, we did see some success there. And it was really thrilling to see that when he went home. 
And then along with that, just follow, following that up with other recoveries that we've seen along the way that haven't been quite as ill, but just to see them go home has been also a good thing and also following up with them as an outpatient and finding that they're still doing, doing well. So what was that like for you guys? Uh, we, see, we see it you know, building in January and then in February and you get the cruise ships and you kind of see the storm clouds on the horizon. Um, what went through each of your minds that night when you got the phone call, the text, the notification that it's here? I think it is something that everybody and our nation is going through at the exact same time. We just went through it in one night. When the first case came through, that was the very first case, number one, in the VA, and number two, in Nevada. And when I and Dr. Daisley conferred about the case, we said, yes, this is it. When we relayed this to the rest of the care team and even to our own family members that now we were dealing with the coronavirus, everyone said, no, no, no. Are you sure? Is this really? Because we didn't have this person tested yet. This was our intuition, Dr. Daisley and I, that this patient had the virus. As a matter of fact, this patient had come into the hospital, wasn't masked, and wasn't tested yet. And so we were all caught somewhat unawares about it. And we had to rapidly reformulate our thinking and turn around our process, you know, protecting the hospital, protecting our staff members, getting treatment on board and things like that in a very short period of time. And I think this is a little bit about what everyone else is going through before they encounter corona, right? Before it comes to their city, for example. Is this really real? Is it as bad as they say? Is it really out there? Um, you know, will I get super sick or will I just be asymptomatic and not feel anything at all? How bad will it get? All of these things, all of these emotions, all of these concerns, and somewhat the fear, we went through pretty much within hours and had to deal with it and reconcile it. And I think over the course of time as our country is coming to deal with this pandemic, that the emotions that everybody else is feeling is very similar to what we had felt and had to deal with very quickly. Can I just add something too? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that's exactly how my experience, my perspective of it was, just like that. And then I just remember that day when we had to um, activate incident command, you know, when we realized, well, finally we were able to get this patient tested, and finally we see that he was positive. And then we have to push forward and make sure that everybody knows and that everything is in place so we can care for him and all those others in an appropriate fashion. And then I'm thinking just everything that I trained and did during all the years of, of, of my training, which, you know, as to, to going to, into to become a physician is a long time. And I think, well, this is what I trained for. This is it, you know, and especially in infectious disease. This is kind of what we are prepared for along the way. So there's a lot of fear, but at the same time, there's a lot of excitement. So, it, and that kind of goes into, you, you mentioned, Dr. Kung, that you know, it's always evolving. Um, it's, it's, medicine to me seems like it's a very, it's a kind of thing where, okay, you have symptoms A, B, and C, I diagnose you with D, and I give you drug E, right? Now it's the Wild West, right? So do you, do you look at that? Is that exciting for you? Is that um, scary? Is it, what's, 
it, it, it's you're 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 looking into the fog in the forest and you have no idea what's out there. I'll let you in on a little secret. I love secrets. There's a lot more we don't know than we do know <laughs> about medicine. You know, I think that's sometimes a little bit about our medical culture and how we come across as physicians where we have to have a certain degree of confidence and absolutism. Yes, this is your diagnosis. Yes, I know what's going on. Yes, I can treat you. More often than not, that is not the case. There is, you know, as I go along in my practice, and I'm sure Dr. Daisley knows as well as a specialist, we find out that there is more and more that we do not know. And the same skills that we applied in medical school and residency, where we have to learn and take in more information. And I will tell you, even in the short three years of my fellowship, what I had known in the beginning of my fellowship was already outdated by the time I graduated. So this is happening on an accelerated course with corona, simply because it is so new, novel, and so much information is coming in, and we have to not only sift through that information for its validity, as in, is it real, but we have to apply experience to that. And as I said, you know, and alluded to before, the treatment that we gave to our index patient is completely different than the treatment that we give now. And, you know, one of the questions that people always ask, because we are seeing increased numbers, but the hospitalization hasn't necessarily gone up, and certainly the death rate has been relatively flat, is due in large part to the things that we have learned over time. Yeah. So you mentioned that the, the index patient, you use a different treatment that you're using, that you're using now, um, but you still saw success with that patient. Mm -hmm. um, do you, are you seeing perhaps like different effects on different people? Is it mutations in the, the virus itself? So that's one of the hard parts about this, right? Because we see asymptomatic carriers, we see mild cases, especially in children and younger people, and we see more severe cases in older people or people with uh, um, underlying medical conditions. Because it presents so differently and because everybody is somewhat individual, it is a little bit difficult to predict how this is going to go. Similarly, it is also difficult to predict what treatments will work and will not work for some people. Dr. Daisley mentioned dexamethasone, which is, I think, our best medicine right now. Even though that improved mortality, in other words, saved people from death by a third, we still lost over half of those patients who received dexamethasone, okay? So it's not a be-all and end-all drug. It's certainly better than nothing, and the studies have shown that, so we give it to everybody now. But does it save everybody? No, not at all. And, and I think it's one of those things, too, that, you know, we hear so-and-so recovered. Right. But as we hear more and more about what people are doing, you're hearing, I was a world-class athlete, and now I can't run a mile. Yes. Like, people are coming out of this absolutely trashed. Yes. And, you know, this is the other element that we want to mention. Uh, you know, we do not want to be fear mongers and alarmists about this. And we mentioned masking earlier. Right? It is simply not a matter of life and death. There's so much else that goes along with corona. We hear people who have blood clots, who develop dementia, even young people. The COVID toe is an issue. What we have seen that hasn't been reported a lot in the media is, for example, kidney disease or permanent lung damage or permanent heart damage. The type of damage that I see for people who have recovered is akin to maybe 50 years of smoking. That's how damaged their lungs are. And this is people who come out of the ICU 
in what we call a recovered condition, but they still have all of these scars from their hospitalization. So this is by no means a mild disease for everyone. It, it, it seems to affect the cardiovascular yes. system a lot more than That's just right. the pulmonary system. That's right. Do. That's exactly yeah, right. It's not just a lung disease. Yeah, exactly. we're definitely seeing a pattern in that. There's definitely a thread with most of those that we've seen that have been severe as far as their manifestations, and they usually have that heart condition that's associated with it. And, of course, the lung disease that they have. And then sometimes they will have that kidney failure and things like that that sometimes could improve or sometimes will be irreversible. And those things... It, there's a lot of uncertainty going forward as far as how long they're going to experience this. But most likely, they have a lot of scarring, and so scarring usually doesn't go away. Wow, so that's something that even with you know, extensive rehabilitation that you may see for the rest of your life. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's the unfortunate thing. So what do you think a new normal will look like uh, in our daily lives? You know, prior to having a vaccine, how do you think that we're going to be able to move about? And how does the VA expect to be able to move forward? Well, I see a lot of those changes already occurring. And of course, we continue to probe for even more innovation. But we see a lot of movement as far as teleworking. And I think that's really helpful for those that are non-essential workers. They can be at home doing the same thing that they do here, and that keeps them distanced automatically. And then we can continue following their work progress that way. Those that have to be here, then we have put forth a lot of policy. Obviously, leadership is the one that's implementing it. And that's been very helpful, just the universal masking, the screening for all patients that are coming into the hospital, all of the looking at the innovation as far as is this aerosolized and what are we going to do to protect those around us, making sure we have enough PPE. All that is so important as we continue on. So they developed a nice tool that helps us to see how much PPE we have now and then calculate how much we're going to need in the future. It's not a, a perfect prediction, but it's something that really helps us going forward so we make sure we have enough of all the equipment that we need so that we can protect the employees, patients, and all those that come into our facility. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, some of the changes that we are making now will benefit the veterans directly, okay? We are improving a lot of our infrastructure in regards to how we provide telehealth so we can make veteran care a lot more efficient, give them on-time care, care delivered to their home, much more tailored care. And even though this was a result of the pandemic, a lot of these good things that we have put into place will stay for veterans, irrespective of whether or not we're dealing with a pandemic. When we talk about a new normal, uh, and I know masks are a touchy subject for mm. a lot of people, um, but do you think and or hope that this ends up being something where our culture becomes more like uh, places like uh, Japan and South Korea, where people have kind of the social responsibility of, I'm sick, I'm going to wear a mask for, for anything going forward? Yeah, you know, I very much like the statement or the phrase, my mask is not for me, but for thee. Uh, this is how I look at it. The reason, and this is the same reason I think Dr. Daisley and I got into medicine, is to help other people. The reason I wear a mask, as uncomfortable and annoying as it is, is because both he and I deal with COVID every single day. We touch COVID every single day. And so we know that there is not an insignificant amount of risk that we ourselves could give it to everybody else. This is part and parcel of our job. We cannot say no to this job and to our veterans. So we have to do this and we have to expose ourselves to COVID. 
But the reason we wear a mask is so we don't spread it to everybody else. And this element of generosity, shall we say, or selflessness or cooperation is something that we'd like to instill in everybody. And that's why I want to convince everybody that this is what the reason for masking is. There is no element for us about why we instituted universal masking here in this facility or why we ourselves are masked. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. This has been a, a very informative topic. And uh, as the, you know, treatment and, and you know our dealing with this this issue continues uh we'll definitely look forward to having you both on again because you know this is this is going to be a topic that we're going to probably be addressing for quite a while uh before we get going uh, i do want to mention a couple of things coming up in the news uh we do have a couple events going on the we'll, there will be a virtual veterans town hall with congresswoman dina titus coming up on july 16th at 3 p.m uh, if you'd like to take part in that, the phone number is actually on a flyer posted on the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System website, but you can call 415-527-5035, and then the signing code will be 199-905-3637, and you can get an actual video available with RSVP. And coming up, uh, if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, Channel 13 tonight will be airing a story about uh, our, one of our telemedicine experts. Dr. Vic. Uh, she will be uh, interviewing with Channel 13. It should be airing on Friday, July 10th. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, very much again for joining us today, and we will uh, see you in two weeks. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having Enjoyed us. our conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash lasvegasva. Thanks for listening.